so um, just a little bit about me. Let's see if I'm going in the right direction. Um, the, my family and I have been worshiping with this congregation since um, the summer of 2010. So some of us are coming up on 14 years. Um, this is a picture of my family, um, my husband and I and our seven children, and five of them are married now, and one is engaged, and the one that's on the far left is my youngest, and she's a junior at Charlotte Christian, where my husband also works. And this is a picture of, so wait a minute, back up. This is a picture of my daughter Emma's wedding last May, and this is a picture of my daughter Hope's wedding last July. Um, this is, um, so it was May 28th and July 8th. Um, this was the twin of the one that got married first. She's the older twin, so that was a thing that she got married second. Um, <laughs> but this is her husband with her, obviously, and he is a pastor at Sovereign Grace Presbyterian in South Park. And then um, this is a picture of what my children like to affectionately call the original Gillers, plus my um, most recent daughter-in-law. So this was their wedding um, August 31st, or I'm sorry, August 26th of this past year. So we had three weddings in 13 weeks. And then, um, let's see, how was it? I think five days later, um, we had another granddaughter born. And then three days after that, another son got engaged. <laughs> so, um, so I have three granddaughters. Two live here in Charlotte. One lives with Jesus. Um, and we are just so happy. I think some of you might um, work in the nursery and get to snuggle both of them and play with both of them. And I'm just so grateful for any of you who love on my little grandgirls and, um, and also love on their parents as you love on their kids. So that is just a little bit about me. So um, this is the theme that we have been looking at since um, early last fall as we started studying Ruth. And it's, we're gonna keep unpacking it as we study through Esther. But that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And we tonight, we'll be focusing specifically on the first part of that, which is God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So here's my outline for this evening. I called it the plot thickens because it really does in this chapter. We'll see that the protagonist is slighted. We'll see our adversary is revealed and we will see that calamity is determined. Protagonist slighted, adversary revealed, and <coughs> calamity is determined. So just starting right off at the beginning, I'm going to actually back us up. We studied Esther 3 this week, but I'm going to back us up a couple verses and re start reading from Esther 2 verse 21, where we see our protagonist um, doing his good deed. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. 
When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men who were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted, I'm going to stop there. So we see that Mordecai uncovers an assassination plot. We see that he's willing to stick his neck out for something that he believes to be right, which is to show loyalty. Um, and this was even recorded in the king's annals. The plot is thwarted and the assassins are executed. And the beginning of the sentence of the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, might actually lead the reader to believe that Mordecai is about to be rewarded for his loyalty. And instead, we read another name right where we think we might hear Mordecai's name. So let me read that again. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So our adversary is now revealed. Haman the Agagite. The biblical authors cunningly bring to the reader's mind the ancient feud between Haman's people and Mordecai's people by mentioning their ancestors. If you look back quickly over to Esther 2 verse 5, we read that there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shammai. So we are told that Mordecai is descended from Shammai and Kish. Both of these were relatives of King Saul. And we, um, King Saul is the first king of the people of Israel. So not only was there a feud between King Saul and King Agag from whom, of the Amalekites from whom Haman is descended, and we find that in 1 Samuel 15, the hostility went even further back. In Exodus 17, we are told that as the people of Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites were the first ones to try to destroy the people of Israel. And um, the animosity was obviously centuries old. So we're also given a little characterization of who Haman is. We're given glimpses of the fact that in these verses, we see that just like Xerxes, Haman becomes enraged when he doesn't get his way. We see the absurdity of wickedness again. It's not enough to take out Mordecai. No, no, no. Haman's rage propels him forward in his malicious thinking and compels him to seek the death of an entire people group. Like Xerxes, Haman sets out to make many people pay for the offense of one. But here is the irony. Haman's desire to take out the entire people group ultimately results in Mordecai's life being spared. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The calamity is determined. Um, let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 7. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, Lots were cast in Haman's presence. 
The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. The day selected was March 7, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through the, all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. So if it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as <coughs> Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces, and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Remember, ladies, there are 127 provinces, and the uh, Persian Empire spanned from India all the way over to um, North Africa, um, South Egypt, and up to Greece. So this was an enormous um, landmass and a huge undertaking to not only get the message out, but to also write it in the exact language of all the people, all the different people groups in the empire. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed slaughtered and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So pur, or the dice, the word for dice, um, purim, introduces the element of destiny into the story. By using purim to decide the death date, Haman would have attributed that decision to either his gods or to chance. However, we can be certain that it was Yahweh who ordered the selection of that particular date. How? How can we be certain of that? Well, if we look at Proverbs 16, 33, it says, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. It's clear, it's so clear, that God used this roll of the dice to continue making his plan, moving his plan forward. So we see also that um, Haman is a man master manipulator. 
Haman starts his argument by othering the Jews, by making them seem as un-Persian as possible. And then he outright lies, and Haman takes advantage of Xerxes' fear of of revolt. And the reason why we know Xerxes would have been afraid of revolt at this point in his reign is because he has already put down very violently put down a revolt in Egypt and two revolts in Babylon. Um, So Haman saying that the Jews don't obey the king's law was kind of the winning card in Haman's deck. He rightly assumed that Xerxes would do anything to avoid revolt and to proclaim his might. Haman was manipulative. He was driven by pride and a need for revenge. This is the man, this man that lies and manipulates and signs the death warrant for an entire people group. This is the man that the king has decided to honor, not the one who uncovered and thwarted an assassination attempt. I can't help but wonder if Mordecai would have agreed with the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 12, 1, you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? I can't help but wonder if Mordecai would have said that with Jeremiah, would have said that with the psalmists who say that over and over again in the Psalms and other places in scripture. God's people wonder about what seems like the prosperity of wickedness. Mordecai was experiencing that in the promotion of Haman. Xerxes seems that he can't be bothered with even finding out who these people are when he sets the death date with Haman. His apathy blinds him to the fact that these are actual people, these are actual families, actual communities that will be destroyed. He doesn't even seem to care. The death date is set as casually as if they were planning the next snack they would eat. The chapter finishes with Haman and Xerxes blithely having a drink while the city and the empire are thrown into confusion. Ironically, the death date is sent out on the eve of Passover highlighting this dangling question. Will God who delivered the people of Israel on the first Passover, the God who covenanted himself to the people of Israel, would he still deliver his people even when they are in exile for the very reason that they broke his covenant? It is a dangling question. They didn't know. The people of Israel were thrown into despair. At the end of this chapter, there's confusion Um, And at this point in our story, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. No understanding of how they might be rescued or even belief, maybe, that they would be rescued. So let's sit with that for a minute. Let's consider the hopelessness of that situation, the hopelessness that these communities must have felt even as they considered that question. Yahweh, will you save us? Maybe this question hits a tender spot for you. 
Maybe you are asking that question. Will this God bring salvation? Will he bring rescue? Will he bring deliverance? I call these spaces the middle places. In the middle places, we can't see the end of things, and we must walk by faith and not by sight. So I wonder, where are you in a middle place right now? Are you waiting for test results? Navigating a time of treatment? Slogging through a difficult season in a marriage or with a child or with a friendship? Is work not going the way that you would want it to go? Has life seemed to take a turn that you didn't expect? I feel like I've had a lot of middle places lately. Some life-altering ones. Like when we received a tragic diagnosis for our precious granddaughter Zoe Gale and waited in the middle places for her birth six weeks later. It felt like a middle place as we loved her when she was born alive and for her 18 hours before she left to be with Jesus. It was a middle place as I stood in horror and watched my son and daughter-in-law's house burn down. We continued in middle places as we grieved and felt foggy and got angry and felt numb. But I have also just in the last couple of weeks had some middle places that although not life-threatening and not life-altering, they definitely thrust me into hours of fear, hours of wondering how the Lord Jesus would provide rescue in that particular situation. And one of those came after sharing what I was certain the Holy Spirit prompted me to share in a particular situation. One of the women I was talking with later emailed me in that particular situation and questioned my intent for why I said what I said. And she shared that she was very hurt by what I said. So I emailed her back and we settled on a time that I could get to get, that we could get together to discuss um, what had hurt her feelings. And however, although, um, we had to wait a week because I was out of town. And so that week felt like a middle place to me. Um, it was a long, long time. It felt like a long time. The waiting felt heavy and I felt unable to focus my heart and mind on trusting the Lord Jesus in it. Maybe you are like me in your middle places. They seem heavy and dark and filled with temptation to fear. In the middle places, I often feel distracted by the thing that seems to be hanging over my head like a cloud and following me around. In this particular middle space, I asked for help. I reached out to a friend and shared a little of the situation and asked her to pray for me. I needed someone to share the burden because I wasn't able to bear it myself. It was only as I was preparing for this lesson that I saw a connection between my middle place and the age-old feud between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. There is a scene from the very beginning of that feud that gives us a picture of what the middle place battle 
the middle place battle could look like. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus 17, and I'm just going to read a few short verses. This is the battle of the Amalekites as they tried to destroy the Israelites while they came out of Egypt. So starting in Exodus 17, verse 10. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long, sorry, as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. They stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands, so his hands held steady until sunset. Moses was unable to bear the burden of interceding for his own people. The middle place between the beginning of the battle and the victory that God would provide. But when Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses, together they were able to continue the prayer. The battle was not immediately over. In fact, it raged on for some time. But Moses was reminded that he was not alone in that intercession. And in the same way, as we consider the middle place in Esther, the time that began when the people of God hear the death decree and before God brings rescue, as we consider that, let's not forget that there are many places in this world right now hundreds of thousands of people in that exact situation of a middle place, not knowing where rescue might come. For the people of God, we can know that he is with us in those moments of darkness, in the middle places when we can't see the end. And for all who know Jesus as the one way to ultimate salvation, he often shows us that he is with us through giving us someone like Aaron and her for Moses, someone who can lift your arms when there is no strength left, someone who, like my friend, who prayed with me that week for that week of waiting, someone like our church family who circled around my family as we celebrated three weddings, an engagement, the birth of two granddaughters, the loss of a home, and watching one granddaughter leave to be with Jesus. The agitation, the horror, the grief, the fear, the heartache is not removed when someone comes around us in the waiting, but the burden is shared. And there is such a comfort in the sharing, even as we wait through the middle places. In our story, the people of God, in this story of Esther, the people of God are waiting and they don't yet know if they will be rescued. These are agonizing days for them. But we know that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So hold tight to his promises. Maybe find an Aaron and a Her to partner with you in prayer and wait to see the redemption of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for um, the opportunity to open your word and to read 
uh, your people and to read of your, um, the children that you love. Thank you that we get to gather as sisters to open your word together and to discuss what it is you would have us learn. I ask Holy Spirit that you would just continue to do a good work in each of us as you promised to do. Would you continue to mold and shape us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus? And would you continue to open our eyes and compel us to ask for that care and that help so that we can remember and experience you being with us um, through your servants. We love you, Jesus. We ask that you would fill us with more love for you and that you uh, would use us for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.